terrific to be with you in worship. Welcome you again to In Town Church. We're glad that you're here. If you're new here visiting with us, we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke, and we've been in a a, kind of an extended study throughout the year, and we've come now to one of the most famous parts of the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. You can follow along in your bulletin as I read. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a, different, a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. He came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, said said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard me quote many times Walker Percy from the pulpit. He's one of my favorite Southern authors, and he's always had, he's very quotable. 
He was a medical doctor by profession, but early on in his career, he contracted tuberculosis and had to enter into a sanitarium for an extended convalescence. And during that time, he began to question some of the scientific thoughts that he had had and that he had trusted in, some of his trust in technology, that he began to doubt that science and technology alone could solve what he called the human dilemma. So he began to dig and review deeper into his Christian faith and began to write books, both fiction and nonfiction. It turns out he was pretty good at it. One of the underlying themes in his work that comes out is the conviction that one of the fundamental experiences of the human life is a self-conscious awkwardness of somehow not fitting into the universe in some way. One of the books he wrote towards the end of his life is, a, is called Lost in the Cosmos, and it's essentially a satire on the self-help movement in America. But even in its title, it's revealing Percy's assessment, his diagnosis of humanity, that the reason that we feel awkward, the reason that we oscillate back and forth between anxiety and arrogance, between boredom and obsession, is that we're lost. We're lost people lost in the cosmos. In the very last section of this book, he imagines a spaceship that's gone out from the earth, and it's gone six light years away to a neighboring planet that they suspect has life. And when they get there, they're orbiting the planet, and they begin to send these radio signals down to the planet, contacting this alien life form. And the aliens don't want them to land. They don't want them to bring this unknown problem to their planet. And so they begin to talk, and the humans are asking for permission to land. And the alien just keeps asking them for information, wanting information about humanity, about what they're all about, about what it might be, what might happen if they allow them to land. And the humans eventually tell them about the history of their spaceship, about the quarrels and the murders that have happened on the spaceship and that they actually suspect that back home, six light years away, that the world has been virtually destroyed in what was then the Third World War. The extraterrestrial voice says to them, you're in trouble. You requested help? To which the astronaut replies, help? What help? We don't ask for help. We help ourselves. And permission to land is denied. And they continue to be lost in the cosmos. In chapter 15, Jesus tells us, and Luke narrates for us, three parables of lostness. Three things that get lost in the cosmos. And he tells us about God's determination to find that which is lost. To find, in effect, you and I. To move before we do. To take initiative to find us and to make lostness the only way to Jesus. We're going to look at just two things, lostness, not attainment, and a kiss, not a lecture. Before I continue, let me pray for us. Father, we do not like to see ourselves as lost, anything but lost, anything but needy, anything but in debt. Father, we would rather be strong We would rather attain salvation. We would rather come to you out of strength, out of our own questing, out of the conclusion of our own journey. Father, we are proud people. I pray that in that pride you would not let us miss 
the fact that we are lost. Let us not miss the only true pathway to you, and that is by being needy, by falling upon your mercy and grace and claiming it for all of our lostness. I pray that that would come through this morning. Would you meet us wherever we happen to be on the spiritual continuum? Would you speak to us? Would you step into our questions? Would you step into our questing? Would you let us see that we are lost and then be found in you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's three parables of lostness in chapter 15. We only read one of which because it's quite a long passage, but they're very similar in structure. Something is lost, it's sought after, it's found, and then there's great rejoicing. In the one that we read, there's a son who's lost, but the first two have to do with a sheep and a coin. The first, the shepherd loses a sheep, loses one of his flock of a hundred. And his attitude is, well, who wouldn't go and look for the one? And we think, well, that's ludicrous. You're leaving the 99 there to die, to be taken off by wolves. But often shepherds worked in teams. And so it was possible that he left someone with the other 99. So they weren't in danger, but he determined to find this one. Now, the sheep is found, and it's carried home by the shepherd on his shoulders. And then there's great rejoicing. That's the basic structure, the basic narrative of the first parable. The second is about a woman who loses a coin. And the numbers come down from 100 to 10, but the relative value goes up. It's the same type of structure. Something is lost, something is sought after, something is found, and then there's great rejoicing. Now, a couple of commonalities to these, obviously, is that the sheep and the coin can't find themselves, or maybe a better way to say it is they don't even know that they're lost. They can't rescue themselves. A sheep in the wilderness is as good as lost. It's as good as dead. Even if you find the sheep, if you locate it, it won't follow you home as a shepherd. You have to actually put it on your back and carry it. A dog, if you lose it and then find it, it's going to wag its tail and run to you, and then it's going to follow you back to wherever home is. But a sheep won't do this. You Now, if we see ourselves in this parable as the sheep, and if we see the shepherd as God, as we should, a couple of observations come out. One is God's passionate desire to restore those who are lost, to rescue those who are lost. Do you notice the shepherd drops everything? He leaves what he's doing. He goes on a quest to find this one lost sheep. God is saying, I will passionately pursue you even if you're lost. In fact, only if you're lost. Secondly, what commends us to God is not our goodness, not our morality, but our lostness. And this inverts our typical understanding of what it means to come to faith, or at least how we experience, because we typically think of Jesus as the solution to our quest, as the end to our journey, our search, that I prayed, I looked for answers. I quested after truth. But the parables altogether totally overturn this understanding of what it means to know Jesus and what it means God said who quests after you and after me. He's on a mission to recover what is lost. It's him that takes the initiative. We don't search. We don't contribute. Our only qualification Now, I don't want to overstate, 
we have a role to play in seeking for truth, in looking for answers, but it, at the end of the day, it is God who se- seeks us out. Now, what's the context for this? How did this passage start, start? Why is Jesus telling these three parables? Verse 1 of chapter 15, which we didn't read. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man sinners and eats with them. Jesus is this very pious, very moral, very religious person who had this uncanny way of attracting those that society rejected. He had this uncanny way of attracting who were the very opposite of him. He embraces those that polite society society rejects. What do the Pharisees and the teachers of the law do as they see these sinners come and being embraced by Jesus? They mutter. They whisper. They point behind his back and say, look who he keeps company with. Look who he's hanging with. They were scandalized by him. Jesus must have some secret sympathy with sin. He's affirming them. And in fact, he was. Not their sinful behavior, but he was affirming them. He was affirming them as people made in the image of God. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. Through our study of the Gospel of Luke about what it means to sit down and share a meal with someone in this ancient context. It means that you are giving social solidarity to that person. You are saying, I you my people. It wasn't just that Jesus was seen with these people. It wasn't just that he offered them compassion. The Old Testament law called for that. It was that he was building a community around these people. That these were his people. There'd never been a religious community like that before, but Jesus is saying, I know what heaven rejoices in. You see these people that are gathering around me? This is causing heaven to rejoice. There is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't need to repent. Now Luke, of course, is being somewhat rhetorical here because everyone needs to repent. But it's the one, it's the one who's gone astray who understands that, not the 99. The 99, it seems, have done their duty. They've been faithful. Repentance is something for other people to do. Jesus is saying, my earthly community will reflect the heavenly community. My earthly community will be built around the world. What they realize is true rather than the 99 and what they're going after. You see what he's doing? The thing that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law complain about, he sees as cause for celebration, for rejoicing. What they turn their nose up at, what you and I often turn our noses up at, the angels rejoice over. Now there's a couple of puzzling things here. Why are the angels rejoicing? Who is repenting in the story? Are the sheep repenting? Is the coin repenting? There's two very similar stories, but there's very deliberate missing pieces. And one of those has to do with who is repenting. Jesus has told a story about the angels repenting, uh, angels rejoicing over repentance, but there's no repentance. 
in those two parables. We have to get to the third in order to see to see a kiss, not a lecture. Now, a lot of people, and if you have your Bibles with you, it probably says the parable of the lost son. And most focus normally is given to the prodigal son, the one who runs away. And appropriately so, there's some great beauty in that. It's about his repentance and the father's forgiveness. But if you look at the text, it doesn't end there. About half of the text is about the older son. In fact, the story is about two sons who were both alienated from the father, who were both assaulting the unity of the family, who were both lost. Jesus wants us to compare contrast them. Now, the younger son is lost. He's spiritually lost. And that's very easy to see. Shaming his family, shaming his father, ruining the unity of his family, sleeping with prostitutes, spending his inheritance. And we say, yes, there's a sinner. That's who Jesus wants to go after. That's someone who's spiritually lost. And you're not wrong. The first son has blown it all. He's forfeited his fortune. And he heads home to ask forgiveness. And he's prepared this speech. The speech is that I am a sinner. I have sinned against heaven and against you. And no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like my servant. Now we don't know how much of this reflects his actual heart of repentance. He just knows how to play on the father's heart. He knows that the father's not going to make him scrape excrement out of the horse stables. He knows, perhaps, that his father's going to restore him. We don't know. Or maybe this does reflect true repentance. He sees himself as a sinner before God as well as his father. It's hard to tell which one. But he never really gets to the speech. He gives the speech, but in the midst of his father runs to him. Runs out as if he's been waiting daily for his son to return back. And now he finally sees him coming over the horizon and he runs and embraces him and throws a rope around him. And he throws a party for his lost son. That's the story of the prodigal son. And then we get the story of the response of the older brother. And it's frankly much more interesting and much more complex. The older brother is in the shadows looking on. He hears what's happening, and he just sits and mutters. He whispers to himself, and he talks to others about how ridiculous this is that his father would forgive. He's muttering. He's bitter. He's envious, and he's angry. And he says, I'm not going to this party. I'm not going in to this party. It's wrong. Instead of I have sinned against heaven and against you from the younger brother, he says, look, all these years, Father, I have been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He hates his brother's sin. He hates the fact that the inheritance What he hates much more is his father's forgiveness. What he hates much more is the father's generosity towards his younger brother. It's lenient. It's permissive. 
how will his younger brother ever learn not to do this again? How will he ever learn his lesson if you're lenient and permissive and indulgent towards him? He needs discipline. He needs a stern lecture, not an indulgent kiss. He says, I have been slaving for you for years. And that reflects what his real motivation is. All of his work, all of his goodness, all of his keeping up the family image and doing for his father what his father expects hasn't been an act of love. It's been an act of duty. It's been an act of service in order to gain his father's acceptance. I've been slaving for you for years. But the irony here that Luke brings out, is that the younger brother says, I'll do anything to return to you. I was your son, but I'll be your slave. The older brother says, I've been your slave all along. And look where it's gotten me. It's a stunning reversal that we see over and over in Luke. The lost son deserves nothing but slavery and is restored to full sonship, while the older son reveals that he's been a slave all along. That's his identity. I've been a slave to goodness. I've been a slave to my own hatred of your benevolence. He's been a slave to the hatred of his father's children. Over and over in Luke, whenever we see someone repenting, whenever we see someone understanding what Jesus is really all about, there's someone standing nearby that hates it. Whenever someone rejoices about what Jesus is doing and about him running to sinners and embracing them, there's someone standing in the shadows just scornful and looking in and saying, how could he do that? They can't conceive that God would act in such a way. The elder brother can't conceive that the father would act in such a way to throw a party. I am not going in to that party. Mercy and grace are inexplicably the salvation of some and the hardening of others. Those who see themselves as lost, those who see themselves as needy, run into the embrace of God. And those who don't, turn up their nose at God's grace. Now think about it for a moment. Who would you have sided with in this story? Now I know who you side with now. It's who I side with most likely. But who would you have sided with in the circumstances? How can we tell? Well, maybe we should ask, would you, have you, how many times have you or I wanted to guarantee someone's comeuppance? Have we we wanted to guarantee that someone gets what they deserve? How many times have you been disappointed that someone didn't get their due? How often have you wanted to correct someone's impression about another person who is praising them when you know the real story? How many times has someone else's success made you boil inside? How often have you gone towards harshness and sternness in order to correct someone's behavior rather than graciousness and mercy? Do you identify with the overly indulgent father or the son who stayed at home and was hardworking and was diligent and thought he deserved the world? When the prodigal son left, the elder brother stayed. He kept working. He was faithful. He did his duty. He could be out partying like his brother. He could be living it up. Instead, he's at home slaving away 
woe is me. Don't you know he cannot wait until the brother gets home and gets his due? Don't you know that he realizes that if the father receives him back at, at all, it's going to be in the stables. It's going to be as a servant. He's going to get a stern lecture. He's going to get his punishment. He's going to be disciplined. And the elder brother, don't you know, just cannot wait until that moment. He'll finally get to say, I told you so, to both the brother and the father. And the fa- father will finally turn to him and say, I'm so glad that I can depend on you. I'm so glad that I have one son who stands firm. I'm so proud of you, elder brother, because you stayed by my side while this other brother, while my other son has run off and spent his inheritance. Don't you know he's waiting to hear? I'm so glad I can count on you. And how many of us are waiting for that very thing? How many of us are waiting for that from a colleague, from someone in another pew here? How many of us are waiting for that from a parent? How many of us are waiting for that from God himself? I'm so glad I can count on you, and therefore, I love you. But wonder of wonders, the father doesn't give the younger son a lecture, but a kiss. He doesn't respond with justice, but with mercy. Except back, he embraces him and throws a party for him. The elder brother has every reason to be indignant, to be enraged of the father. Foolish. Since he's already given the younger son his inheritance, what the father is spending by giving up this fatted calf and the robe and the ring and throwing the party, he's doing it with the elder brother's inheritance. He's wasting the elder brother's money. He has every reason to be indignant towards this. It seems the father cares nothing about him. It seems the father cares nothing about his own inheritance, about his retirement, about being safe. The father doesn't know how to hold on to things. Only let them go. What he's saying is that if you don't understand God, you don't see grace as almost bursting forth out of his hands that he can't even contain himself, that he's letting go this extravagant, prodigal grace. It's that he can't help himself because that's who he is. And we don't understand him if we don't see him as almost unable to contain himself, as eager to have his And secondly, we don't understand sin unless we see that there's two ways to be lost, not one. There's two ways. There's promiscuous, ostentatious sin, and then there's respectable, well-bred, big brother sin. In other words, there's obvious sin and not so obvious sin. There's breaking the rules to get your way, and there's keeping the rules to get your way. Both are forms of lostness, but only one realizes it. Only one is willing to take hold of the extravagant grace of God because only one sees himself as totally lost. And that's what it takes. The other stands far off trying to coach God on how to deploy his rules. Robert Ferrer Capon is one of my favorite commenters, commentators on the parables. And he sees that one of the blocks that we have is, as, as Christians reading the parables that we see grace a lot of times 
as permissiveness, that we see that grace is the reason that someone want, is given for the permissiveness is the reason that someone want change, won't change. If you don't enforce the rules, if you're not hard, if you're not stern, then people can't give up grace. What he says, you're worried about permissiveness, about the way the preaching of grace seems to say it's okay to do all kinds of terrible things, as long as you just walk in afterwards and take the free gift of God's forgiveness. While you and I may be worried about seeming to give permission, Jesus he wasn't afraid of giving the prodigal son a kiss instead of a lecture, a party instead of probation. And he proved that by bringing in the elder brother at the end of the story and having him raise pretty much the same objections that you and I do, he's angry about the party. He complains that his father is lowering standards and ignoring virtue. That music, that dancing, that fatted calf are in so many permissions to break the law. And to that, Jesus has the Father say only one thing. Cut that out. We're not playing good boys and bad boys anymore. Your brother was dead. The name of the game now on is resurrection, not bookkeeping. The younger brother, friends, has experienced resurrection. The elder brother is still balancing the books. He can't live books are out of balance according to him because that's the only world that he's ever all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed that's how he sees himself he's constantly balancing the books and when his father says no more book balancing there's no more debts against your younger brother or you he doesn't want to receive it he wants to balance he's done nothing but slave his father's affection. He's never disobeyed his father's orders, and now the father is embracing the very one who's done nothing but disobey. Part of the beauty. That's half of it. A God who embraces prodigals. A God who sends his son Jesus, the great shepherd, to carry the sheep back on his shoulders. Back. That's, that's half of the story. But it's also the story of a prodigal God. Do you know what prodigal means? It, we kind of have this idea that it means overly sinful or ostentatiously sinful, but it doesn't. It means It means someone who is wasteful with their resources. It's also the story of a prodigal God with enough love even for whiny, bitter, angry elder brothers. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So what does this father go out do? He goes out and pleads with him. My father, my, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. Would you please come into the party? Be welcome. It's where sinners eat. It's where former Pharisees eat. And continuing to come in to the party. Let's celebrate together. What was lost is now found. But you have to be lost first in order to be found. Would you consider that this morning as we pray? Father, I pray that being lost would be our song. That we would remember our lostness, our neediness before you. And that it would cause us to rejoice because in seeing that we see the extravagance of your grace. We see the height and depth and width of your love. Lord, I pray that we would 
continue to be cured of our Phariseeism, that we would be continually cured of our outright sinfulness. I pray that we would see both, not as, not one, as a block. And would you break through that barrier? Would you seat your gospel deep in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we are-